Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, and today I have a return guest. I have Bobby Chacon. He is a former FBI agent. He was last on the show, season two, episode 102. And we were discussing all things FBI cases and being a technical advisor. Um, Bobby Chacon has been a career federal law enforcement professional with over 27 years of experience with a varied career profile, including complex criminal investigation, international deployments, as well as underwater forensic training. A proven effective team leader, Attorney Chacon has led teams with missions around the globe, including going to Iraq in 2005 and 2006. I'm so glad to have you back on the show. Attorney Chacon, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you. You can call me Bobby. Thanks. It's great to be back. Thanks. Oh, I'm glad to have you back. You know, it's, you know, there's so much going on with people talking about, you know, personality disorders, you know, between the, the famous case of uh, Depp and Heard, you know, um, you know, do you find some of these personality disorders that you have run into while working in the FBI helpful? Well, yeah, I think it's it's important to understand that you know uh, you know mental mental illness and mental health issues um, are really pervasive in our society, and unfortunately, that historically taboos have developed um, with those, and uh, it's unfortunate because many of us, myself included, have have at one point in our lives been impacted and and experienced mental health issues, and I deal with them you know all the time myself. And so it runs the gamut, uh, really does. And I, I, I think that there's a kind of a spectrum with respect to mental health, and we all fall on it somewhere at different points in our lives. Um, you know, I've dealt with parents who've lost children who, you know, to, to horrific acts, and, you know, they experience mental health issues. And I've dealt with my own mental health issues in dealing with cases involving, you know, horrific acts against children, and, and particularly. And, and so I think that I think that one of the things as a society we have to do is, is destigmatize it. And I think there have been steps taken, um, but I, I think we're a long way from, you know, a true conversation in this, in our society about mental health. And, um, and I just wish that we could talk about it in the same context that we talk about physical health um, mm -hmm. because mental health is just as pervasive. Um, and yet we deal with it in such a, archaic fashion, I think, in our society. Oh, I agree with that. I agree with that. You know, even with the recent school shooting, um, you know, I, I, you know, don't want to get into like gun control and what they're going to do with that. But, you know, what, what's, what's your take on that? I'm, you know, I hear all sorts of things about the shooter. Well, I think that what, what bothers me in a lot of the post analysis comments, and by the way, I, I turned down about a dozen requests to be on television last week analyzing that situation because I, I dealt with too many of those types of situations while I was in law enforcement and it, it kind of triggers me a little bit sometimes. And um, so I stayed away from that. I did, I think I did one, one appearance out of a, probably 20 requests. And, um, you know, I, I detest, I deplore uh, the term law enforcement radar because we don't have a radar. And this concept that, Law enforcement's out there watching everyone. And the minute, you know, if you're acting bad, the minute you cross over some line, law enforcement's going to be there to swoop you up. And, you know, 
this is not a Tom Cruise movie. We don't have a pre-crime bureau that, that kind of looks around and says, that person's about to commit a crime. Let's swoop them up. First of all, we don't have the manpower. Second of all, we don't have the right to do that to American citizens. People have a freedom of speech. They have a freedom of behavior to, to, to some extent in, in, this, in this society that we want our freedoms um, to allow us to do. And, um, you know, the FBI has been, no question, been caught spying on Americans when they shouldn't. Back in the 70s, we had a program called COINTELPRO that was, you know, highly illegal and highly um, improper. Um, so we have been caught and, and, and disciplined and we've changed our methods over the years and, you know, you get caught again and, and, you know, institutions get corrupted just like anything else, just like people do. Um, and so the concept that law enforcement has a radar, um, it, I, like I said, I, I just cringe every time I hear uh, somebody on TV say, why wasn't this person on law enforcement radar? Well, if you want to look at a radar that, that law enforcement would have, it's, it's really, you're talking about violating people's civil liberties. Uh, we, we don't have the ability, number one, the physical ability or the legal ability to monitor social media traffic 24 seven. Everybody's saying bad things on social media, hateful things on social media, racist things on social media. Um, now, is there a time when people's behavior online, particularly language behavior, crosses a line into hate speech and things like that? Yes. It is. However, if you look at the timelines of some of this stuff, when these manifestos, as people sometimes call them, of these shooters kind of make it online, between that time and the time of the actual action, when they commit the crime and when they commit, is very short. And, and oftentimes, you know, we can second guess and we can Monday morning quarterback and say, look at this person, they posted online this terrible stuff. Well, we're not online 24-7 monitoring people who haven't committed crimes yet. We shouldn't be online monitoring people who haven't committed crimes yet. Um, that, that's a scary concept that law enforcement mm -hmm. would have a radar that we're all under, we're all under watch, you know? Um, and so um, that being said, if you look at something like the Buffalo shooting recently, um, that young person was actually brought into custody a year before the shooting by the police, given to the state mental health authorities for a 72 hour evaluation. And after a 72-hour evaluation, they deemed him not a threat to himself or to others, and they let him go. Um, the FBI and the state police and law enforcement should not be the ones to determine whether someone needs mental health help. They could be exhibiting behavior where we think it might be that, and so we have to have the ability to take them in and get them the help they need. Now, we think that system's okay. The, you know, you have the Baker Act in Florida, you have, you, have certain, you have certain state acts that allow law enforcement to take somebody in before they've committed a crime, when we think their mental health status is such that they may need help, or if they don't get that help, they may harm themselves or someone else. Maybe we have to look at what happens after that. Maybe that 72 hours isn't enough. Maybe we need to expand that. Maybe we need to give them a different kind of evaluation or different type of facility. Maybe they shouldn't be thrown into a jail to have that evaluation done. Maybe we should have facilities that allow a more humane uh, evaluation of these people. And so I think that the, the conversation has to, has to involve Number one, identifying these people and how that happens and, you know, whether it's online, whether it's a parent uh, trying to report it. I mean, I remember, I, I don't know if it was, one of these school shootings uh, was actually a, a young man whose mother had been going to court to try to get him institutionalized. 
and the court system was set up, he was over 18, that he was allowed to be notified of a pending hearing coming up and who the petitioner was. Well, the petitioner was his mother. Well, he then goes, of course, once he gets notified by the court and he kills the mom and then he goes to the school where the mom worked and he kills a bunch of people at the school. That's a systemic failure. Now, I get that he's over 18 and he's adult and he has the right to be notified, but understand that if, if the allegation in the petition is that he is about to harm himself or others, notifying him of this hearing is, may not be the best way. And we, may, we have to look at procedures and processes like that and say, is this the right way to do things? Or should we be able to have law enforcement on a petition filed by a mother, pick up a 19 or 20 year old young man and take him in and then get him that evaluation that he needs. Um, there's no magic to the number 18 when you turn on your 18th birthday. Mental health doesn't just click or not click on or off. Um, and so I think the, 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 the solutions are varied, but one area of the solutions is looking at this system of evaluating people that are exhibiting behavior that we think, we only think might lead to harm of themselves or other people and either expand that system or give doctors uh, better tools and better facilities um, to, to, do the, to do that work. Because I think that's where the work is done. Law enforcement comes in after the fact, tries to stop an act in progress God knows how difficult that is. And, and then go and, and try to put the pieces together after a horrific accident has already, not accident, excuse me, a horrific event has already transpired. So I think that if you're talking about real prevention, um, not intervention during the act, and we, you know, we see a lot of that questioning the police action in Texas last week, and, and that's valid questions. But if we really want to stop it before it gets to that point, um, we have to look at the process that, that is in place and how, what powers we give to law enforcement to take people into custody and deliver them to the mental health professionals and experts who can truly evaluate them and then give those experts the tools, um, maybe longer detention, maybe longer uh, institutionalization, um, better tools to treat them um, and, and direct resources and government funding towards programs that are going to allow those mental health professionals to keep those people in programs that are going to get them the help they need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think there's enough programs in place for that, uh, for these people to go to. Um, you know, they put people in jail or prison and they've got, you know, even uh, addictions to drugs where, you know, it's like the, part of the prison should be a detox alcohol, drug and alcohol unit. Instead. Absolutely. And, and quite frankly, it should be, a, in my opinion, it should be a different set of people because I think that the doctors and psychologists that are used to dealing with inmates in the jails, they have a different approach. And, and sometimes their vision and their judgments can sometimes be clouded a little bit. Um, I think it should be a, a, a different physical, a whole different physical facility, different type of facility, um, and, and a different set of people who don't look at these people as inmates, don't look at them as criminals, because quite frankly, that's the way the hospital staff in prisons looks at them, and, and maybe rightfully so. But I think that we're talking about people that pre-crime, they have not committed a crime yet, but they've mm -hmm. exhibited behavior that leads you to believe that they could be dangerous to themselves or others. And so, um, you know, maybe they've committed a small hate crime based on language they, they use, but they haven't done anything physical to anybody yet. But their behavior online or their behavior, even not online, 
could lead someone to say they might do this. And so you have to deliver them to the mental health professionals. And that's where the funding needs to, you know, you can pass all the other laws you want, but we need to get these people the care that they need before they start carrying out these acts. Pre trying to prevent them from getting the tools that they're using is just one small part. But somebody that can't buy a gun can get behind the wheel of a truck, you know, mm -hmm. and, and drive through a parade. And somebody who, mm -hmm. who can't get behind the wheel of a truck can pick up a knife or set a building on fire. I mean, there's a number of ways that people, if they're hell-bent on harming people, will harm them. Um, and, and believe me, humans have been harming other humans long before firearms even existed. Um, throughout our human history, we have wars and we have things, you know, horrific uh, campaigns that have happened, people hurting other people, people killing other people without the use of, of firearms. Um, so so the, the, the ability to do that is there. What we need to do is we need to short circuit the behavior um, and identify people that are exhibiting behavior that might lead to that. Um, and we're just not doing a good enough job in doing that. And we're not doing a good enough job because we don't have the, we're not dedicating the resources to it. And we don't, we're not establishing the institutions to do that in a way that, you know, and I, and I would even move it outside the, the prison system, outside the incarceration system. I think, you know, um, I, I know years ago when I was growing up, we had what we call mental institutions and, and you know, uh, and stuff. And they were state run and they were horrible places, no doubt. They were poorly run, they were warehousing people, those people weren't getting the, the help that they need. Um, they were just just horrendous conditions in some of them, in most of them. Um, but, but the idea of that is what I'm talking about, the idea of we need mental health facilities where we can house these people and get them the help that they need. And, and the fact that a decade ago or a generation ago, um, they were in a place and they weren't operated correctly, you know, that's okay. We, maybe we can learn from that and maybe we can change that, but have these facilities where we can deliver these people and get them the help they need before they commit one of these heinous crimes and, and, and possibly turn lives around and, and possibly make them productive members of society again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's sad. I used to be a psychiatric nurse. So it's like you would see some of these patients that had horrible upbringings as, as children. And on top of that, perhaps inheriting a mental illness. In fact, I had said to uh, one of the seasoned nurses, she'd been there, I don't know, 18 years. And I, I said, that, that poor guy over there. And she said, well, you know, we've got the, we've got the nice brother. The other twin mm. is at the other hospital because we can't have two brothers in at the same time. And she said, well, those parents of theirs met at a mental health hospital you know like an institution fell in love got married had these twin boys one's violent the other one's not so violent uh it was just really but both had just, issues even the non-violent one had some mental health issues yes yeah i mean it's it's there's definitely you know there's definitely research to suggest that some of this is inherited um mm -hmm. some of it's passed on um, even behaviorally, if it's not inherited, um, certainly, you know, the old phrase, what children learn what they live or, or something. Um, and certainly, if you're raised in a household that has certain behaviors, you're going to, um, you know, Matt, Matt you're going to uh, adopt some of those behaviors, the, the cycle of violence and the cycle of abuse um, is clearly established that, you know, children who grow up in abusive um, uh, environments often become abusive themselves, or, you know, the victims of abuse become the abuser. Um, and so, sure, I think that, you know, that's, that's a whole other area that we're talking about. I, I think uh, for a long time, we've had a parenting crisis 
in, in this country. I think that, you know, there's many, many children out there being raised um, by parents who don't have the ability to impart to those children the, the proper things that they need to become, um, you know, uh, functioning adults. And, and that's, 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 that's a whole other issue. I've seen a lot of that as well. Sometimes, even in my own family, where you have, you know, I call it babies having babies and, mm -hmm. and, you know, and they're, they, they're not of the maturity level themselves to, to be having a child, and yet they do. And then that child is going to be disadvantaged in, their, in, in being raised in that kind of environment. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think sociopaths are made or are they born that way or do they learn this? That's uh, such a good question. It's such a hard question. Um, there are, you know, camps on both sides of that answer. Um, you know, nature versus nurture. Um, I, I, you know, I think that, you know, I think, you know, I think we're all born with a certain um, amount of, of things in, inside us that we have to deal with. And I think that, um, you know, good parenting gives, gives children the tools that allow them to deal with that stuff and and appropriately and 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 bad parenting or no parenting um doesn't give those children um the ability now do bad people come from good families sure um and do good kids come out of situations that don't have good parenting yes absolutely um and that's that's why i think it's a little of both i think you can come from an environment that did not have good parenting and you can ultimately become a good parent and, and, and a good adult and a, a you know a perfectly functioning adult and I think vice versa. I think you can come out of a, a, a situation where the parenting was perfect and you had everything you needed as a child and you could become an evil person. I think there's, a, I think there's, there's a, an argument to say that's a little of both. It's, we're all along that, that, that spectrum line and uh, you know how we control ourselves. I mean, there's a, a doctor here in Southern California down at UC Irvine, I believe, who believes there's a gene, there's a DNA gene uh, for psychopaths and he can test it and he can find whether or not you have that gene. And he actually did the test on himself and he has the gene. And he said, why, why am I not out killing people even though I, I have what's, you know, what's known as the psychopath gene? Um, well, it's because he was given tools um, growing up and his mind formed in a way that he has those tools um, to not, not suppress, he doesn't have the urge to go out and kill, but the urge doesn't even flower up uh ripen up enough in his mindset um but it's there and and in his in his you know paradigm it's there and he's just not acting on it um uh, now and there's been some people who've done brain scans of of serial killers in jail and there's different there's differing schools of thought on that my own personal belief is that it's a little both and i know that's probably a cop-out answer by myself <laughs> but i think it's a little both i think that um i think because we do see good kids come out of bad situations and we think we see bad kids come out of good family situations. I think that's proof that it really is um, a little of both. Mm -hmm. well, I don't think anybody is born bad, like born mm -hmm. bad. I don't, I don't think that. Um, I think we're all born with the ability or the potential to be bad and we're all born with the ability and the potential to be good. Um, mm -hmm. And and, and so I think that there is something that happens in our early development stage um, that sets us on a path, on one path or another. Now, you can always change that path if, you, if something intervenes, something interdicts 
um, you get some treatment or an adult comes into your life that changes things and stuff. So I, I think that early development is key, but I think that even if you're on the wrong path coming out of your early development time, that you can still change given some type of intervention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, even when there are situations where uh, kids are even killing younger kids. You know, I, I don't know if the FBI, I'm, I'm sure would probably be involved in something like that. You know, well, sure. We had, we had a school shooting a couple of years ago. I think it was two 11 year olds um, staged themselves out in the woods and one went in and pulled the fire alarm because he knew all his classmates would come out and he was, um, and then they shot some of the classmates. Those kids were 11 when they committed that crime. I think they're both out now. They served in juvenile facilities and, and now I think they're both young men and I think they're out. And then we just had the, the, um, a little girl who disappeared. I can't remember where that was. And it turned out to be like a, a 14 or 15 year old cousin of hers that kind of walked her out of the house. Um, she was going from her aunt's house to back to her parents' house and so when she disappeared, they found her the next morning murdered and it turned out to be her 14 or 15 year old cousin um, that was uh, somehow obsessed with her. Um, but but yeah, I mean, we do, we do see that. Um, now, you know, there's different, there's different schools of thought on that on how you handle it. You don't, you don't throw away, you know, a 14 year old kid and, 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 you know, and throw away the key. Um, but, you know, uh, that's a heinous crime. And, uh, you know, there has to be both punishment and treatment for somebody like that. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's just so complicated. It's just so sad that, you know, these things happen. And I, maybe they've always happened, even like say in the, in, you know, in the 1800s, I'm sure all this was going on as well. Well, I mean, people were harming people, people were murdering people, but I think that, I do think there's more of it going on now because the tools like guns are more available to people mm -hmm. that want to do it. And, and quite frankly, a, a gun is much easier to kill somebody with than a knife or than a, uh, uh, than a car uh, or things like that. I mean, the, 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 um, the, the, the kid in Dallas, the 18 year old in Dallas, not Dallas, in Texas last week, um, didn't even have a driver's license. He got behind the wheel of his grandfather's pickup truck and he drove away from that house. After killing his grandmother, he crashed because he couldn't drive. I mean, he didn't even have a drive. At 18, he didn't even have a driver's license. So, um, but he could readily get a gun. Um, and so I think that there's, there's more availability of the tools to carry out violence um, than there ever was. And that's one, that's one component of addressing the issue, but it's only one of many. And, um, and there seems to be always a over, um, overreaction, not overreaction or overemphasis of that one thinking, all we need to do is this and we'll solve the problem. It's mm -hmm. not true. Um, mm -hmm. That's not the problem. We need to get these people the help they need um, before they start committing these acts. And just simply, you know, it's, it's, it's like an overeater and you're going to, you know, lock the uh, cookie jar. Um, mm -hmm. They're going to find another way to eat. Uh, they're going to find food somewhere. Um, and so, you know, you, you know, that, yes, that is an answer. That's one, that's one thing I have, you know, you know, dealt with alcoholics where you, you, you remove all the, the, the booze out of the house. They can still find somewhere to drink. Um, you have to address why they're drinking. They need treatment. They need, you know, addiction treatment, things like that. And so um, the answer is, like you said, it's complex and it's not always, we simply have to inhibit their ability to get the tools that they need to, to carry out that behavior, whether it's alcohol, whether it's whatever it is, a gun, that's only one part. And quite frankly, it's the smallest part of the answer. The, the real answer is 
getting them the help they need psychologically, getting them the mental health uh, uh, treatments that they need so that they don't carry on that behavior. Um, because you, you, you deny them that access to that, they're going to find something else. Um, mm -hmm. They need help. If you care about the person, the person who's experiencing these mental health deficits or these mental health crises, um, if you care about that person, um, you, you know, hopefully before they go out and they kill people, um, you should care about them. That's humanity. A mm -hmm. And if you care about them, then you would be much more talking about a system that gets them the help they need long before we ever see them go into a gun store and buy a gun. Mm -hmm. I just don't think there's enough compassion um, or people are not paying attention to these people that just aren't doing well. No question. I think, and that's, that goes along with our, our society's uh, viewpoints of, of mental illness. It's like, you know, um, like I said, I think we all have a level of mental health issues that we deal with every day. Um, and, and, and because we don't talk about it and because we, we've never looked at it in that way, um, look, everybody gets a cold from the time you're a child and everybody gets the flu and everybody gets scrapes and bruises and bumps. And so your physical health, we all experience that stuff. Well, guess what? Psychologically, we all experience trauma, even from young age, even if we don't know it or realize it. And that trauma, as we're growing up, the different things that happen to us, seeing a car accident, seeing a friend get uh, uh, physically hit or abused, like even ourselves, if we get hit or abused, all of those traumas, like those bumps and scrapes and bruises that we deal with physically are, are affecting us emotionally. And yet we don't deal with that. We don't talk about it. We don't learn about it. Um, you know, I saw my doctor as a kid all the time, my physical doctor. Um, mm -hmm. But no, nowhere do you see a mental health doctor or a mental health professional, um, not on a regular basis. Only when something is hit a crisis point do we do that. Now, I really am encouraged when I see, and it's far too infrequent, but schools doing things like meditation at the elementary school level, you know, um, where, you, where you start to look, look at mindfulness and, and certain practices that we can impart to children early in life. You know, now mm -hmm. we're starting to see, uh, you, know, you know, eating properly. Um, and, and, and exercise and, and, and sometimes you know, like things like meditation, even to a third grader. I would much rather see a third grader be lectured in meditation than on some of the other issues that they're now being taught at that level because that's, you know, that's, that was the whole idea behind physical education. You, you have to exercise, it's good for you. And long-term, it's gonna do your life good if you're, you, know, you stay in good shape. Well, we don't treat the mind the way we treat the body. And if we did, we would be at the elementary school level, not only teaching them physical education, we would be teaching mental education, how you, how you deal with certain things, if things are happening at home that are bothering you, how you deal with them. And you have to treat everybody the same way because we're all experiencing them. If you only pick out a child that you see signs of the crisis happening, it's too late, not too late, I'm sorry, it's not too late, but, but that's happening to others that you don't see. And so give them all, give every child those tools to deal with. Don't just pick out the ones that have gotten so far that you notice it as a teacher or a, a, a school nurse or something like that. Give all of these children the tools that they need, just like you've given them the physical tools by sending the physical education class. Give them the mental tools that they need to deal with the different traumas that they may be experiencing that may, you may not even realize they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. You know, kids are going through all sorts of, uh, you know, changes, you know, their parents could be getting divorced, there could have been a death in the family. You know, I think, you know, 
teachers perhaps should be more hypervigilant on these things. And, you know, and the school counselor maybe should have it more together on issues such as these. Yeah, well, that comes into training, awareness, mm -hmm. budgeting. Um, but imagine if we, if we just assumed that we're going to give everybody, every child, this training, every child, this attention of, you know what, this is what we need to do, you know, to maintain our mental health. Because guess what? They go to PE class and they get into their shorts and they, they learn what they're supposed to do to maintain their physical health. But we don't do enough to train mm -hmm. them mental health. And again, if you train them all, then you, I think it's like it's like a, a stone in a lake, and and that 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 those, those ripples go out. It's like empathy will will spread when you start teaching these children these mental health tools and giving them those tools. Even if they're not affected, they may be able to help one of their classmates. They may be able to help one of their family members because now we're giving them a toolbox and a set of tools to deal with these traumas that we all experience but we've never been really given the tools to, to work with. And I think if we, if we just give it to everybody, I think it will spread. I think that empathy will spread and people will help each other. And I think that it will, it will, it will just make everybody better human beings. And, and I think that in doing that, you will also interdict earlier in situations that, um, that now we, we just find schools just interdicting too late because they don't see the signs and they're not giving them, they're not giving all those children the tools that they need to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, um, in your work, you know, to change subject, not to change subjects, but uh, what was the worst personality disorder or person you've ever run into? Mm. <clears throat> the, one was at the beginning of my career and one was at the end of my career, really. Um, my first child recovery was a uh, a poor little six-year-old who had experienced a massive amount of uh, physical abuse at home and was murdered by his own father. Um, and uh, that, you know, I, I, I could not wrap my head around uh, a father, uh, you know, taking the life of his own son in, in such a fashion. And, um, and, and it really kind of rocked me a little bit to, to you know, because I had to, you know, have that child in my arms at, at one point point and, and um, I was working on the dive team in my early days of the dive team and uh, they had put the child in the water to try to hide the body and um, and, and then um, at the end of my career I worked a serial killer case that had, he had killed probably I don't know he admitted 11 murders to us probably then he hung himself in jail but um, he, he probably committed 30 murders I would imagine if not more um, and I re recovered his uh, his last victim she was a 19 year old girl um, that he raped murdered and dismembered um, but he was pure evil. I mean, and his, after he hung himself in jail, um, the FBI released all the interrogation videos that we had done with him because now there's no expectation of privacy. So now some of them were edited because we didn't want the horrific details or some of the stuff, but you can watch him. You can go on YouTube and you can, his name is Israel Keys, and you can watch him chuckle and laugh about the evil things that he would do to people and how he knew not to get caught. And he operated, I think, I think he did his first, he, he said he first started attacking uh, in his late teens and he was 34, I think, when we arrested him um, and he hung himself uh, about 11 months after we arrested him, maybe a little less. Um, but, uh, you know, when you see those videos, it's chilling That's, that a, a human being, a 34-year-old man could just sit there and, 
and talk so casually about torturing someone, another human being who has done nothing to him, who has not done a thing to hurt him in his life, simply an innocent person that he chose at random um, because of certain opportunities um, that he wouldn't get caught and he would calculate that and then just select somebody. Um, it's just, you know, I mean, the word evil comes to mind. I don't know how else to explain somebody like that, that um, could so casually take another's life in such a brutal, uh, horrific fashion. Uh, you know, you wonder what went wrong with him as a child or a young man. Um, uh, you know, I am certainly not a psychologist. I am not qualified to make those judgments, but I have sat with people like that. And, you know, it's chilling and it's, it really is a dark side of, of human beings that, you know, hopefully most people will never be exposed to. Mm-hmm. Like when you talk to these people, you know, you probably ask them about their childhoods. Do you ever ask, you know, uh, was, uh, I don't know, did they ever go to church? Were they taken to church on a regular basis? What do they tell you? Yeah. I mean, like, and, and some of it, you know, again, it's a double-edged sword. There are, really good things that come out of people of faith that that when they have a belief system and a faith system um they're also like this the israel keys was kind of raised on a cult compound in texas um that had you know biblical implications and stuff and his father was a very uh bible uh uh focused person um but that could also backfire and that could also you know he maintained that had nothing to do with it there's a book about him about israel called american predator um, and he goes into that in some of his interrogations and stuff. Um, and, and so I think that, I think there is value to being raised with a belief system, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be Christian, doesn't have to be, you know, uh, whatever. It, but I think a belief system, um, that gives you guidance, morality, um, I think there's some benefit to that, um, even if it's generic, even if it, it's agnostic or whatever it is, I think there's a, I personally think there's values there's a value in having a belief system that kind of can keep you centered and can keep you, you know, saying, you know, as a human being, I don't want to treat other human beings that way. That's a belief system that like, because animals don't have that, right? Animals like, if, if I'm an animal, I'm hungry and that, and I can kill and eat that other animal, then I'm going to do that, you know? And so it's, uh, you know, it's a belief system that human beings have, that whether it's religious based or not. Um, I think that there's value to that in, in, in living a life that's, that's humane. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I was watching TV because I couldn't, it just wouldn't let me turn the channel. <laughs> and I got stuck watching uh, Dead Man Walking. Mm-hmm. And um, that was really interesting. I never wanted to see it when it first came out. But right. um, how she got him to admit what he had done. And he was, I don't know, in a state of denial or believing his false narrative for so long. <sighs> Yeah, I think, and that goes to the point where, like, and, and I, I often thought of this with Israel Keys, but like, is like when someone is purely evil, are they really purely, or is there something in there, like you said, in that character, did he believe what he was saying, or is there somewhere deep down in his, I, I was going to use the word soul, but you know, that's has its own implications, but is there a soul, is there a, is there a part of us that that can be reached by somebody like the other character in the movie that you said, um, Susan Sarandon. Was that Susan Sarandon? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so is there somebody that can reach that part of you, that, that soul, if you will, for lack of a better term, 
um, inside you that's good and, and, and pull it out and pull some of it to the surface more. Um, and and I, I, I believe there is. I believe that we all have, you know, we're all on that spectrum and some that, that they're like Israel Keys, I think is pure evil, but I think there was some, Israel Keys had an 11 year old daughter. He never abused that 11 year old daughter. He had her and he had custody from a previous uh, relationship. And so he had custody of an 11 year old daughter that he took to school, that he braided her hair, that he took care of. Uh, and he never abused her, but nothing that we have found, uh, we had found. Um, and yet he was going out and doing these murderous things um, mm -hmm. to other people. Um, so, you know, was that good or was that just a, was he just acting so he could live a life in public that didn't give him away so that he could carry out his other brutal uh, evil deeds? Um, I don't know. I, I tend to think or probably want to think somewhere deep down in my own self that everybody has that in them, that everybody has that that something good. It's just sometimes it's buried a lot deeper with other people than it is with most people. Mm -hmm. You know, when you have these people that will say commit a murder and um, then they claim that they are crazy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I think that they um, are not, I think they know what they're doing mm -hmm. only because when I was a, a psych nurse, I was, um, passing meds. And I just had to give a prenatal vitamin to this woman. That's all it was. There was no, no medication, but she swore at me up and down words I had not even heard of. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, okay, so she did. Did she think you were drugging her? Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And I said, look, look, look at the, you know, packaging of this pill. Anyway, she didn't take it. But then I would say two years had gone by and they had trained me to do ER assessments. And sure mm -hmm. enough, I end up with her in there. And she was in such a bad way. She was in such a bad state. And she sat there and she apologized. Oh. Remembered what she had said to me. And right. that day, it's like, oh, okay. You know, and I was, I was kind to her because I, I know, you know, I mean. Right, right. So, you know, I got her up there on the unit and whatever. But I'm thinking, you know, these people that commit these crimes and say, oh, no, I'm crazy. I, I should get off with this. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I think they know what they're doing. Well, yeah, and oftentimes, quite frankly, as a lawyer, you know, we know that you know, there are very cunning defense attorneys who, once they get a case, they will look for whatever defense they could to get their client off. And quite frankly, that's the way the system's set up. They have to be a very um, hardened advocate for their client. So there are no, almost no rules for on a defense attorney on what defense to pick. And if they think that they can manipulate the mental health system into saying this person wasn't responsible for their acts, they will do that. Now, I have other people, other friends who are former prosecutors who say, fine, then, you know, if you want to use that as your defense, um, we, we have the trial the same way we always do. If you get convicted, you go to a mental health facility to get your treatment. And once the doctors think you don't need to be treated anymore, then you get transferred to a prison to serve out the rest of your sentence. Um, so, you know, like not to be able to use that. If, if, if it's true, we want to get you the help. But we don't, we don't want to allow you to use that to avoid punishment for acts that you've committed. Um, and that safeguards against people using it falsely. Um, you get them the help they need, and then they serve out the rest of their sentence. Or they, when they're deemed, you know, psychologically able to rejoin society, then a sentencing occurs and, uh, you know, or, or something about that. I just don't, I don't agree with, you know, the, um, uh, what would they used to call it? not guilty by reason of insanity, mm -hmm. you know, and I think most states have actually done away with that. Um, but, you know, now it's guilty 
you know, but with extraneous circumstances, guilty with mental illness or whatever. And so, um, yeah, I don't ever want to allow someone to use mental health because even in the cases it's true, you know that it will bleed over and people that are not uh, mental, truly mentally ill in carrying out those acts will use it as an excuse. And there are very enterprising defense attorneys out there every day that will exploit that unfortunately. And so we don't want to have that, that exploitation to be allowed. But I agree with you that, yeah, if you commit an act and it's somehow deemed that you were, you know, you had a psychotic break or whatever, I think that should be taken into consideration at some point in sentencing. Um, but it certainly shouldn't impact whether you're guilty or not of the crime. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that being said, I, re I realize that, you know, there are oftentimes elements of a crime like intent, can I form the proper intent? And the doctors will come in and say, well, they didn't even know what they were doing. If that's the case, mm -hmm. I think that's very rare. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I think it's more rare than, than it's alleged. I think it's alleged in a lot more cases than it actually exists. But if there's somebody who truly, truly didn't have the intent um, of doing something, then, then you have to look at that. But I think that, that that allegation that they didn't have the intent is, is brought up many, many more times than is actually true. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but, um, you know, is the FBI still looking for accountants? The last time we talked, you had said they were looking for accountants. <laughs> yeah, well, traditionally they did. I think in my academy class, which was 1987, um, I think about half the, well, about 40% was our accountants, about 40% were lawyers, and about 20% were everything else. I think those percentages have now drastically changed. I think there's probably 20% lawyers, 20% accountants, and 60% of you know computer scientists language people um prior military prior law enforcement um come in um and so you know times change uh, but we still now we still need accountants because you always have to follow with big crimes follow the money right got public corruption follow the money a lot of crimes happen because financial gain right so and now much of that financial gain is computer-based you know it used to be bank robberies they carry out a bag of money now somebody can you know, sit at a keyboard and, and steal all that money. And so mm -hmm. it's still numbers, it's still money, and you still need an accountant to figure out all that stuff where the money's going. But now you need the computer skills to also figure all that stuff out. So it's much more computer-based crime, is much more computer-based now. You still need the same backgrounds, but now you need the addition of, you know, computer skills, uh, things like that. And, 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 and God knows I got out at the right time because I am not very political, uh, computer savvy. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I don't, you know, I was raised in an area in a generation without computers, without cell phones and things. And so while I enjoy them now, I just, I am not very good at working with them and working on them and stuff. So I think that now um, computer scientists, um, language abilities, because crime has become so global. Um, and again, because of computers, um, you can have a, a, a criminal co-conspirator across the globe that you're working with that you've never met physically, um, but you're working together on crimes. Um, and so uh, language becomes an important thing because now we're a global society. Um, so language and computer skills, I think, are the two biggest things. Uh, you know, with, still with the, with the background of if, if you're an accountant, um, you're always going to have a place because so much of crime um, has to do with money and, and it has to do with numbers. And, uh, and like I said, anything from public corruption to corporate corruption to tax evasion to you know fraud um, and, and to hacking all, a lot of this stuff uh, all boils back down to greed and to money and we need to have people with a mind of numbers um, that can figure that stuff out 
Oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, as far as languages, what language are the, is the FBI looking for people to have? It changes. It varies. You can go on the FBI website and they usually have like the top languages that they're currently recruiting for. Now, obviously, when I was coming in, it was, you know, it was um, Korean because the North Korean threat. Chinese obviously is always going to be a threat. Russia was a threat, then it wasn't. Now it is again. Um, so Russian languages, um, Baltic languages, Asian languages, things like that are very important. Spanish and Spanish-based languages and the Romance languages are pretty pretty common nowadays and getting more common all the time. So it's not uncommon to have, you know, in the FBI Academy, a number of people that are already fluent in Spanish and sometimes native Spanish speakers. Um, so, so they don't necessarily recruit at that much because it's natural in our society, especially in America, that we have naturally uh, Spanish-speaking people. Um, but, but those languages like Chinese, like Russian, um, uh, like Arabic uh, are, are, uh, are all very sought after and, uh, and, and would help somebody in the application process. Okay. Well, hey, one last question, and I promise I'll let you go. <laughs> Fine, it's okay. You, does the FBI get a lot of calls about guardianships with people calling about a loved one being held hostage in a guardianship? We get call. We, we do get a lot of calls like that. And you know, what in the law? When I was studying in law school, we called it elder care, right? And it's um, it, it, it encompasses a lot of things, you know. But mainly, elder care is a uh, state by state law. You know, wills, trusts, and estates are a state by state law. Um, and lawyers in the different states have different laws that they deal with with guardianships. Um, my sister's a guardian ad litem in Florida, and so you deal with this different. Um, it, it really becomes a state law now. That being said, if if somebody is pilfering somebody's social security, you know they're keeping grandma in the closet and they're taking all her social security money. That's a federal crime, right? Because that's social security is a federal system. Um, if if things are going across state lines, um, if they're transporting people or money, or if they're using computers to do it, uh, which you know internet is a federal crime. Um, phone lines, you know, we used to have the mail fraud and, and fraud by wire. We used to call it, um, and that's using the phone lines to commit fraud. Um, all of those can be federal crimes. And sometimes we work with the states um, jointly on some of these and you, you figure out which laws are, were broken. And then sometimes if it's both the state law and a federal law, the prosecutors, the federal prosecutor will talk to the state prosecutor and say, do you want to take this? You want us to take it? You know, where does this case lie better? Who has the better evidence? Because sometimes evidence can be introduced in federal court that can't be used in state court for different, you know, there's rules of evidence on the state level and the federal level. So in those guardian type laws, even though generally they are state by state based, so the state law enforcement uh, apparatus would address it. There are times when it crosses over into a federal crime, um, fraud, uh, uh, elder abuse is generally, again, a state crime. But if it's fraud, if they're, if they're keeping somebody uh, to, to gain uh, their, their money through a federal program, then obviously that would be a federal law and, and, and the FBI would have jurisdiction. And again, again, we work hand in hand with our state partners um, in those fields um, to decide how to approach those cases, what best avenues we both investigate and prosecute those cases. Well, thank you. I'm so glad you came on the show again. Thank you <laughs> for like, having me. I'd like to have you back on. Anytime. <laughs> Okay. Well, hey, don't uh, jump off. Slam the Gavels, a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again here with Attorney Chacon and other exciting guests. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for having me.